0: An illiterate person becomes at the mercy of those who teach them. They can't search matters out for themselves, they are at the mercy of those who teach them. It's one thing to be illiterate, it's another thing to remain illiterate. Most illiterate people don't know that they're illiterate when it comes down to the scripture because they have a lot of sermons under their belts. They have a lot of biblical knowledge or sermon knowledge or denominational knowledge, but the application of that knowledge is not always employed by them. And this is how you will find people who consider themselves to be biblically literate operating in paganism. And in order to maintain that pagan mindset, one now has to justify their paganism and the way one can discredit scripture and justify paganism is to render scripture if it's not associated with salvation as if they can separate scripture from salvation. Well, it's not a salvation issue. So it's a biblical issue, but it's not a salvation issue. How do you make the distinction of what's a salvation issue and what's not? (laughs) How do you determine that? It's not a salvation issue. Who made that determination? Because if salvation and the way to live as a saved person is laid out in scripture and we're living in such ways that one could say is not a salvation issue, but is an issue against the Almighty, how can you do that which is against the Almighty and still claim to be saved by that same Almighty? Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. The joyous occasion of Yeshua's entrance into the city of Jerusalem, the exploits performed by him in the temple courts, and the prophetic fulfillments of the prophets spoken hundreds of years prior presented serious issues for the religious leaders. In addition to Yeshua's entrance, the shouting of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna! In the highest, the scene Yeshua caused by overturning the tables of the money changers and driving out the merchants from the temple courts infuriated the chief priests and scribes. The teaching opportunities provided by all of the events of the day and the following day upon Yeshua's return to the city present tremendous lessons for us on faith, fear, and the way of righteousness. Join us as we glean from the lessons learned from Yeshua's interactions with his disciples, discourse with the chief priests and the elders of the people, and the parable of the man and his sons in these powerful and dynamic lessons taught by Messiah Yeshua in the message, Faith, Fear, and the Way of Righteousness. So, let's study. So, again, today we're going to be talking about fear or faith fear and the way of righteousness. As we talked last week, the joyous occasion of Yeshua's entrance into the city of Jerusalem, the exploits performed by him in the temple courts, and the prophetic fulfillments of the prophets spoken hundreds of years prior presented serious issues for the religious leaders. In addition to Yeshua's entrance, The shouting of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. The scene Yeshua caused by overturning the tables of the money changers and then driving the merchants from the temple courts infuriated the chief priests and scribes. Now, what's interesting about this is the chief priest, the high priest, the priest, the scribes. These were the individuals that actually had authority to operate and to manage and maintain the temple, the courts and its surroundings. Unfortunately for them, just like many today, they have a tendency to control the people or to try to control the people. When people have been given the responsibility and the authority over certain things, there's a tendency to try to take ownership of it. When a person has been given a little bit of power, there's a tendency to allow that power to go to their heads. I must confess to you that when I first heard somebody call me reverend, It did something psychologically to me. Elder. When people started looking to me as a person who walked in some kind of authority. And if you're not careful, it will swell your head. Even to the point to where now you start seeing yourself as a person of authority And the way you should see yourself is a person of authority in the realm of the supernatural, not as an authority over other people, because in that you begin to abuse your authority. If you're not careful, you try to make people submit to your authority. You can't do it. Husband, you can't make your wife submit to you. If she doesn't voluntarily do that on her own, you're going to have some serious frustrations because the tendency is the moment that she doesn't comply, you find yourself thinking about manners of force and however that manifests itself, whether it be control and manipulation or physical or threats. You'll find yourself trying to control, and not only her, but other circumstances and people. This is where authority can go to people's heads. What we have been given authority over is all the works of the devil, including the work of the devil that has caused your authority to go to your head. See, the enemy, he works, he's, he's very, very, uh, he's a schemer. And I've had to come to the place in my own life because as a husband, as a father, I had to remind myself from time to time that I was a son. And as a son, I didn't always walk in compliance. <laughs> I was a schemer. I was sneaky. I lied and I hid, and that's human nature. It is human nature to lie. We're born liars. It is human nature to deceive. We're born deceivers. It is human nature for us to operate in all manner and realms of sin, depending on the discipline or lack thereof that you employ in your own life. Some people have little to no discipline. Some people cross line after line after line after line and go in places they have no business going in. And once you go into a place, you can't ungo there. Once you open up a door, it's very difficult to shut that door because we work with forces that we cannot see. You can sense, you can feel, but you can't see it. And that's the same thing with the supernatural that works on our behalf. Sometimes you are not aware that there is supernatural power and authority that is operating in you. And the only way you can maximize the use of the supernatural authority that you have is that you be constantly mindful of who you are and the power and authority that you've been given by the Most High. Nobody has to submit to you, but the devil has to. Are you hearing me? No human being has to submit to you, but the devil has to. He doesn't have a choice. When you tell the devil to get behind you, he has to listen. He has to obey. If you are walking in your true divine authority, people, on the other hand, (laughs) depending on where they are and where their will is, they can give place to the devil and in that resist you or give place to the most high and in that submit. And that's where all of us are is that we either choose to submit or we choose to rebel. But the bottom line is our actions comes from us. Now it can be influenced by the things around us, but ultimately it's our decision to do whatever it is we do and to say whatever we say. And we can't say the devil made us do it. That's not taking the responsibility if the devil is making you do something, then you have to admit to the fact that you are the devil's property. <laughs> Whew. I'm told folks online, lie. Y'all can't hear these folks in here. They're talking to me. They say, say it, some, say, say it again. <laughs> if the devil made you do it, you have to admit the fact that you belong to the devil. That's just the bottom line. You can't be claiming to be belonging to the Most High and allowing the devil to make you do stuff. Something's wrong with that picture. So the scribes are infuriated. And, and what we're going to see in this passage, brothers and sisters, and please hear me. See, Yeshua's already said to them, say, so You're not Abraham's seed, your daddy is the devil. And their actions is going to show. Who their real daddy is. The teaching opportunities provided by all of the events of the day and the following day upon Yeshua's return to the city present tremendous lessons for us on faith, on fear, and the way of righteousness. And as I was saying earlier, it's amazing how individuals who claim to be believers give over to acts that is clear they have pagan origin it is no misunderstanding to anybody that christmas has pagan origins sunday has pagan origin the idea of easter has pagan origin and when churches and people who claim to be a faith exercise and operate in certain types of holidays that are clear. They have pagan origins like Halloween. You're going to find that this, you know, Halloween is the 31st of this month. And already, you know, you can call it trunk or treat. You can call it hallelujah night. You can call it all saints night. You can call it whatever you want. But the bottom line is that its origin is pagan and paganism is idolatry. So here you have people who claim to be believers operating in idolatry. Yeshua's interaction with his disciples, the discourse with the chief priests and the elders of the people, and the parable of the man and his sons reveal some powerful and dynamic lessons taught by Yeshua. And we're going to look at some of those. In the previous teaching last week, we talked about how Yeshua fulfilled certain prophecies prophecies from Jeremiah, prophecies from Zechariah, from Isaiah, prophecies from the Psalms. And here we're going to remind us that even the law had prophetic elements because the law prophesied and Yeshua said from John the Baptist to all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. In other words, John heralded in a prophecy mentioned in the Torah concerning the one who would be made or come likened unto the brethren Moses spoke about. Father says, There will be one like unto you, a brethren, once he comes, you must what? Shema? You must listen. And those who do not listen to him, it will be required of them. Yeshua came and fulfilled that prophecy. And so, on his way to Jerusalem, he passed through, and we looked at this last week, whereas, Matthew only had Bethany. We had to look at Mark and Luke and come to find out that Bethpage was a part of that journey. And Bethpage, we looked at last week as the house of unripe figs. In this particular passage, Yeshua is going to go to a fig tree and see no figs. He's going to curse a tree. Bethpage was known, as I said, of the, as the house of unripe figs. And according to Luke in verse. 29 of chapter 19, and it came to pass when he he was come nigh to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And then in Matthew 21, verse 17, it says, and he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. And I'm pointing these things out because when we look at the whole of Scripture, and this is one of the things that I like about going through the Bible verse by verse, because it forces you to look at verses and passages and try to get understanding of those verses and passages that once you keep them separate of themselves, it's very difficult to understand. And so we're blindly led by preachers and ministers who cut and paste passages and verses of Scripture to create doctrines. And sermons and teachings. If you notice, most times when you have a debate or a conversation with a person about Scripture, their memory retains a sermon they heard. Most people are not biblically literate, illiterate when it comes down to Scripture. And many biblically illiterate people have been in church. Mostly, all their lives. And it's sad. It's unfortunate. But what it boils down to is, I was thinking on my way here this morning about some of the excuses I've heard about slavery. And one of the reasons that individuals talk about swine and other unclean things is because master gave that to the slaves and that's what they had to eat. And so it's become part of the African American diet. And as I was thinking about that, even the idea of illiteracy, because with the literate people who were in church being taught by master, what the Bible says, not being able to read for themselves, not being taught how to read, one can control an illiterate person. An illiterate person becomes at the mercy of those who teach them. They can't search matters out for themselves. They're at the mercy of those who teach them. It's one thing to be illiterate. It's another thing to remain illiterate. Most illiterate people don't know that they're illiterate when it comes down to the scripture because they have a lot of sermons under their belts. They have a lot of biblical knowledge or sermon knowledge or denominational knowledge, but the application of that knowledge is not always employed by them. And this is how you will find people who consider themselves to be biblically literate operating in paganism. And in order to maintain that pagan mindset, one now has to justify their paganism, and the way one can discredit scripture and justify paganism is to render scripture, if it's not associated with salvation, as if they can separate scripture from salvation. Well, it's not a salvation issue. So it's a biblical issue, but it's not a salvation issue. How do you make the distinction of what's a salvation issue and what's not? (laughs) How do you determine that? It's not a salvation issue. Who made that determination? Because if salvation and the way to live as a saved person is laid out in scripture and we're living in such ways that one could say is not a salvation issue, but is an issue against the almighty. How can you do that? Which is against the almighty and still claim to be saved by that same almighty. See, that's the deception. But more or less, it's illiterate. See, to be literate is to understand words so that when you read those words in a construct of a sentence, you understand the sentence, you understand the context of the passage, you understand and comprehend it, and then you know how to put that into practice. What's the point of knowing something and then not doing something? The Bible says it's better not to know than to know and not do one who has the knowledge of the word and who does not do what the word says deceives who themselves. So you got a lot of deceived people talking is not a salvation issue. I guess that gives them the permission and the right to do it even though it's pagan. Hmm. Christianity doesn't distinguish paganism. Only the law does. You reject the law. Paganism is no longer an issue. I told y'all, y'all need to invite some people. You need to get your mama, your daddy, your cousin, them, and all of them up in here to hear what I'm saying. Cause I'm making the argument for you. Now, I don't know, brother, you might say something that might turn them off. Okay, well, that's up to you. <laughs> Matthew 21, verse number 18. Now, in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. Now, notice this is after, this is after he cleared the temple. Last week, we were in that passage the prior verses where he went into the temple and he cleared the temple. He turned over the changes of money, drove out them who sold. He goes back. And this is why I pointed out Matthew 21, 17, and he left them and went out of the city into Bethany. He lodged there overnight. And now in the morning, he returns into the city and he's hungry. Why? Cause he hadn't had breakfast. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And the Bible says, and presently the fig tree withered away. Now that word presently has several meanings immediately, forthwith, instantly. And then the usage immediately straightway, forthwith, presently soon. I'm pointing these things out because as we've talked about, When it comes down to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they see things from a different perspective. And everybody is trying to recount their experience, and it's not often always, or it's not always, in chronological order. It's important. When you begin to understand the construction of the Bible, how we got the Bible— The way the Bible was put together, it wasn't handed down from heaven by the Most High to the Pope. It wasn't handed down from heaven in its book form. Now, I know there are those who believe that the Almighty wrote the King James version of the Bible and handed it down to man. Like some believe Joseph Smith was out in the field and he found these golden plates called the Book of Mormons. I mean, people come up with some weird stuff as to how God got to us the Bible. The Bible was compiled by individuals who used the method and process to determine whether or not the Bible or the book that was being included in the Bible was actually inspired by his spirit. That's why, when I ask the question about Esther, the fact that God, the Lord, is nowhere mentioned in the whole book of Esther, one questions how Esther got in the Bible. Now, I can question it all I want to. You can question it. But there are some who will say, no, that. That was put there by God. No, it was put there by men, brothers and sisters. And once we understand, then we don't find ourselves arguing. See, the way you prevent arguing about the word. Is you understand the word, you understand where it came from, because what you will find yourself is arguing with someone who doesn't even have the capacity or the knowledge to be able to argue with you in the first place. Why would you argue with a foolish person? The Bible says if you rebuke a fool, they'll turn on you. First of all, the Bible stands on its own. It doesn't need you to defend it. What it needs you to do is believe it and apply it and walk in it. See, your argument is going to be your life. That'll be your argument because you could be a person. Remember I told you about this guy who was telling people I was preaching the truth on the, about the Sabbath. Bailey's preaching the truth about the Sabbath. He's preaching the truth and yet he wasn't keeping the Sabbath. And I had to actually come out and tell him to stop telling people I'm preaching the truth because if you believed it was truth, why aren't you doing it? There are people who claim to have truth, but they're not doers of the truth. And what they do is they discredit their own truth. This is why the world around us look at the church. Children look at parents and you see where they see these individuals and they're saying these are fake people. They're hypocrites because they're preaching and teaching and saying all this stuff while they're up in that church house. But look at how they're acting when they out that church. Your truth, if you believe is truth. You should walk in it. You should live it. And if it's truth, it's going to set you free. You're going to stop lying. You're going to stop cheating. You're going to stop committing adultery. You're going to stop committing fornication. You're going to stop all that stuff that the Bible says you shouldn't be doing in the first place. But then you're going, well, I won't say you. But there are those out there who say, well, you know, brother, we all sinners. And so, you know, you sin every day. What scripture is that? Where's that at in the Bible? Now, it makes for good theological denominational preaching. But you won't find that scripture. The Bible says, and you're sure, it's like, you know, you think about it. He tells this woman, go and sin no more like she couldn't. Why would he tell her to do something she couldn't do? Why would he ask us to do something? These signs shall follow them that believe those who believe in me, the works I do, they shall do. And you will find people making excuses for not being able to do what Yeshua said. They could do like he is a liar. Let him be true. And every man a liar, do not submit yourself to this, Information, preaching, sermons, and teachings that tell you you can't do what Yeshua said. If you do, you're listening to the wrong messenger. We're going to talk about faith up in here. According to Mark, Yeshua had cursed the fig tree the day before. He went into the temple and cast out those who sold and the money changers. And the following day, as they returned to Jerusalem, the disciples noticed the tree had withered. Mark adds that the time of the figs were not yet, or the season for the figs to ripe was not yet. And this is what he says. First of all, in verse 11, it says, Yeshua entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, When they were come from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves. He came if happily he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet. And Yeshua answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it and they come to Jerusalem and Yeshua went into the temple and began to cast them out. Now, according to Matthew, he's already done that. According to Mark, he does it after. Who's right? Is this a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. It's a perspective. You try to remember something exactly how it happened five years ago or two years ago or last year or last week. I find it amazing. I sit in a room with two couples who are fighting or having disputations. And each one's account is different. It's like, how y'all get to different accounts where y'all both in the same room? One remembers it this way. The other remembers it that way. Is they wrong? No. One conveniently remembers it the most convenient that is going to make Viv look the best in the (laughs) storytelling. Not knowing that their version of the story makes the other person look like they don't know what they're talking about. So they got to correct them and say, no, 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 that's not how it happened. (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? That is just happened last week. And this is how our minds have a tendency to operate. Even when you tell your testimony, you've lived the testimony. You've lived it. You've experienced it. You went through it. And then you can have an hour, tell your testimony, be done with your testimony and realize you left out some key pieces. That's just the way we are. So it's not that either of them are wrong. It's the way the account is given, because here's the thing that we know to be true. In both of these situations, there was a fig tree. Yeshua spoke to the fig tree. The fig tree withered. He drove the tax collectors or the, the money changers and the people, he drove them out of the temple. Did he do it before he spoke to the fig tree or after he spoke to the fig tree? Really? And so you'll have somebody who will try to hold on, say that's a contradiction, and totally ignore all of what has happened. Focusing, you know, Yeshua talked about these are the kinds of people that strain at gnats and swallow camels. These are the kinds of people that you find yourself arguing with. And the argument is insignificant because every time almost, well, no. Every time I have spoken on the words of Yeshua, when he said the works I do, you shall do and greater works shall you do. You know, the question that I always get is, what are the greater works? It's like the words before that didn't matter. Why are you so concerned about the greater works when you're not even doing the works? Get the works down first. And so he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and will not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My my house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. Why? Because they feared him. I can tell you something, brothers and sisters, people who are afraid of you, are dangerous someone said if you beat a dog long enough he'll turn on you a person who's afraid of you is a dangerous person because they're unpredictable you don't know what they'll do i remember a story some time ago about a fellow by the name of al green Now, I know that when that woman was cooking those hot grits, it was not her intent. And maybe it was. But why would somebody throw hot grits on a person? Fear. They've had enough. Brothers and sisters, the worst thing you could do is make people fear you. Because somebody is going to figure out a way to take you out. Why? Because they're afraid of you. They fear you. This is why when bullies do things, you you look at some of the folks that are doing some of the things in these schools that are going into places and shooting it up, killing folks. And then you hear their stories. And that person is the least likely person you would ever think would do something like that. It's not about trying to make people fear you. It's a matter of you living your life and walking in a manner of respect, I would much rather have people respect me than to be afraid of me and the scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him. Why? Because they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. they feared him because they were afraid of him because. People were listening to it. See, I'm going to tell you, you become a dangerous person when people start listening to you. Especially if you are speaking to them truth that frees them, that liberates them, that inspire them, that encourage them to rise up. The word fear or fear phobia to put to flight by terrifying, to scare away, to put to flight. It's got all of these different meanings, but it's used fear 62 times in the American version to be afraid, to be afraid of reverence. That's one word for it. And that word reverence once there, you know, when we fear Jehovah, is not that we should be afraid of him. It's a matter of us reverencing him. See, when the Hebrew writer said that those who come to him must first believe he is, that they must first believe he is. If I am one who comes to him and I believe he is, then I also understand that he rewards them that diligently seek him. If I'm afraid of him, I'm not going to diligently seek him. I'm going to be repelled by him. There is a reverence that we have because we know he is who he say, because if he's going to reward me for diligently seeking him because of he is, what's he going to do to me if I'm disobedient to him? See, I don't want to have that kind of thinking. I don't want to hide from him. I want to come boldly into his presence. And I know that when I come boldly into his presence, I'm not perfect in the fact that everything I've done is right, but I reverence him to where, wherever wrong I've done, I'm expecting him just like we prayed today. Search me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Show me me. Help me see the stuff in me that is not pleasing to you. Why? Because I want what you got. I want what you got for me. And from what I read, you got a whole lot of stuff. That's from what I read. Because it's like, you know, you're telling me seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and all this stuff that the world around me is seeking after. You're just going to throw that in for good measure. So I know that if I diligently seek you, you're going to reward me. Because you are who you say you are. If I fear you in the sense of reverencing you, I'm not going to be doing the stuff that you tell me. Those who do these things would not inherit eternal life. The reason why I'm seeking you is because I want eternal life. The reason I'm seeking you is because I want all my needs met. The reason why I'm seeking you is because I want to be whole. I want to be healthy. Another thought I was having this morning. i just be having all these thoughts in my head. And I have to live with them. Because the thing that I have purposed in my heart more than anything is to examine my ways. I'm not so much concerned about examining other people like I used to be I'm more concerned about examining myself because if I examine myself and I see the motivations, I see the things in comparison to what his word says, then I can identify the wickedness that is in me because the Bible tells me my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He knows it. The more I learn about his laws, the more I learn about his commandments, the more I I learn about what is acceptable and is unacceptable to him. The more I want to begin to make the necessary adjustments to do those things, to gravitate towards those things that are acceptable to him and away from those things that aren't. And it's hard for me to do that if I'm focusing on y'all. The only way I can do that effectively is I continue to keep the spotlight on me in comparison to his word. And as a result of doing that, the preaching and the teaching is going to be more aligned with this than what other people are teaching, because I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to please him. I'm not trying to climb some corporate ladder or some religious ladder or trying to get to the top. Because he's already made me at the top, along with a whole lot of other folk. See, there is no respecter of person in the kingdom. He sees all of us the same, even though we may have different job descriptions, different titles, different genders. He doesn't see my sister any less than or greater than my brother. He says all the same, and he's given each and every one of us the same opportunities to be found pleasing in his sight to access everything he has. So if I focus on that, then I'm going to be focusing on my flaws, not yours. And if I focus on my flaws and see my flaws, then I can now, based on what he has revealed to me about myself see how I got deceived and how I deceived myself and therefore have the compassion to be able to communicate to somebody else without condemning or judging them. That's work. But if I've looked at myself and judged myself first, because I'm going to tell you something, we got compassion for us. <laughs> you got all the compassion in the world for you. How do you translate the compassion you have for you to other people? Now you can treat people the way you want to be treated. You can love others the way you love yourself. Why? Because you've recognized the beams, the motes and you've removed them so that you can see clearly. So as I was having this conversation, there was a time when I was fat. I didn't know I was fat. I knew I was fat, but I didn't know I was fat. You know, you can be fat and not know you fat, but you look at yourself and you know you fat, but then you don't think about your fatness because there's somebody else fatter than you. You can justify being fat. And as I was thinking about this morning, it's like, you know, there was a time. And this woman came up to me and said, Pastor Bailey, you fat. You got fat. You know, and the tendency is how dare you? How dare you tell me about myself? But the fact is she was correct. And I had to think about this. I had to think about it. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I invested heavily. In my obesity. It didn't happen overnight. I invested in the all-you-could-eat buffets and ate all I could. <laughs> I had no discipline in my appetite. And little by little, I just continued to grow and ignored the growth. And then those issues start causing other issues. Medical issues. And the fact is is that now I've got to turn around and look at the investment in my fatness and look at it as a bad investment and then invest in reducing the investment that I've made in me. <laughs> but there's an issue. I got habits. I've got eating habits. I've got Eden patterns. And in order for me to do what is necessary, I got to go against myself. I got to work against me because it was me that did the work. And if I continue to do the work that I've done, I will continue to go in a direction I don't want to go. So now I've got to resist myself that's the way the word works. If I'm going to work this word, I got to resist me to do it. I got to work against my nature because the word is against my nature. There's the human nature and there's a the supernatural, the word, that in order for me to do the word, I've got to now start thinking differently. My mind has got to be renewed. I have to see my way of doing things, taking me in a direction that is opposed to the direction I say in my heart, I want to go. So here comes this push and pull, but because of the habits, the strongholds, I have to now address these strongholds, address these habits make some new habits, resist myself when it comes to the old habits, employ these new habits, and push it forward. And it doesn't happen one day, or two days, or a week, or six weeks, or nine weeks, or a year, or two years. I remember when I was in rehab, going to drug and alcoholic anonymous classes, Narcotic anonymous classes. And one of the things that frightened me more than anything is somebody who has been clean for over 20 years relapsing. It's like, how can you relapse after 20 years of sobriety? How does that happen? See, this is a rest of your life thing, folks. Because you can backslide if you're not careful. You can start going through the motion if you're not careful. This is a diligent walk way every day for the rest of your life or you relapse or you backslide and you lose all the ground. And now you got to start that process all over again. Some of us know some folks like that. Some of us has been that folk. This is a lifetime. And there are lots of people on the, on the way in this journey. That are trying to distract and deter. Mark eleven nineteen says that when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remember and said unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Yeshua answered and saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily, I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. I read this. My mind can't comprehend it. I can't visualize it. Are you telling me I can speak to the mountain and the mountain is just going to slide into the sea? Really? That's what he's saying. Can I grasp that? Can I comprehend that? Can I even see myself speaking to the mountain? For what reason? So I'm going to tell you something. We can read things that he say and discount it. Not take it serious. Not even think about how that would be applicable in my life. Because if you won't speak to the mountain, you're certainly not going to speak to the hurricane. You're certainly not going to speak to the thunderstorms. You're not going to speak to the animals. You're not going to speak to the devil or you'll talk to the devil because you can't see him. But I'm talking about these things are visible. He said, listen, if you say, if you got faith, you can speak to that mountain. I remember when he walked on the water and I read that and I had a swimming pool in my backyard and I must have attempted several times to go out there and walk on water. Every time I sunk. How many of you've tried? See, you you can laugh at me for trying, but I'd much rather try and fail than to never try. And the reason I don't try is because I don't think I can. And if I don't think I can, then I have to say that what Yeshua is saying doesn't apply to me. Look at Peter. He sunk, but he did walk. At least he got out the boat. You see, brothers and sisters, I'm using this as an illustration to show us how we have a tendency because of religion to discount his word, to not make it applicable to us. Because if I start reading this, man, what if I start believing this? What if I start believing everything he said? What kind of person would that make me? I can tell you this, it'll make you a person of faith. And once you start walking in that path, nothing anybody can say or do that will cause you to repent from walking in the faith that you have come to believe is real. If not, then guess what? You'll discount a whole lot of things concerning the scriptures, not even realizing that you're doing it. He says... Therefore, I say unto you, what what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. I remember as I'm putting this, this message together, I'm reflecting a lot. I'm reflecting a lot on different phases of my life. I'm remembering when I didn't have faith, when I didn't believe, when I did have faith, when I thought I believed and all of the outcomes. I'm just just reflecting because I do this kind of stuff. I do it with myself because I believe that, you know, I have to reconcile when when I'm dealing with heathens and atheists and people who have different faiths and folks from other denominations, and I'm talking to them, and I'm looking at the Bible, what the Bible teaches, I have to analyze within myself, do I believe this stuff? Am I telling me I believe it? Because, see, I'm of the opinion if I believe it, then I should be walking in it. If I'm not walking in it, can I say I actually believe it? And this is not a conversation I'm having with you. This is a conversation I'm having with me. Because if I'm going to preach this, I have to ask myself and even acknowledge the fact, why am I preaching it? Because I know that there are people preaching this for the wrong reasons. I know there are people who are preaching and they don't believe it. I've seen these people. I've had conversations with them. It's employment. It's a vocation for some. It's a hired position. It's a hireling for some. All these things in the Bible, people preaching to increase Paul's bonds, people preaching because they are of the enemy. And we see Yeshua confronting a whole religious system operating, as they say, according to the scripture. And he's saying, your daddy is the devil. How can you be a devil's child? Teaching the people his word. <laughs> Folks, the deception is real. And I have to answer these questions myself, for myself, lest I give lip service. So how can you believe that? And this is where the personal application for me comes in. Because I know that when I stand on what he said and I see his response to what he said, guess what? According to him, when he puts his word out there, it's not going to come back to him empty. I will never see the manifestation of what he says if I never stand on it. And if I don't stand on it, do I believe it? When I stand on it and I see him come and uphold his word in my life, guess what? It gives me the confidence to stand on some more. And it gives me more confidence and more confidence. And as I build my confidence in him, what people have to say is irrelevant from that point on because there are people out there who reject this and claim to believe it. He says, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? See, he spoke to the tree. They're seeing the tree withered and they know that he's not just giving lip service. They're seeing the manifestation of the words that he spoke. And he said, listen, what I did, you can do. Really? You mean if I spoke to a fig tree like you spoke to the fig tree, the fig tree will wither? See, Yeshua didn't have these doubt issues in his head. We do. And we got to work them out of us in order to embrace fully what he says. Because if you don't do that, the only way you're going to do it is you got to confront you. You got to confront you. You are your biggest hindrance. Nobody else. Because you determine what you are going to do and what you're not going to do. You determine what motivates you and what doesn't motivate you. This is why Yeshua said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. It's what's in his heart because out of his heart comes the words out of his heart comes his actions. See, you can fight all day long about swine, flesh and possums and coons. But what you really want to be looking at is what's in your heart. What's in you. And if you want to know what's in you, listen, to what you say. Listen and watch what you do. What you do and what you say will tell you who you are. You could say what you want to say, but your actions is gonna speak who you is. Mm-hmm. So now I gotta watch my actions. I gotta watch my thoughts. I gotta watch what I'm letting in. Cause that's the only way I can guard. But I gotta get some stuff out of here first. I got to get some stuff. And I got so much unbelief. At least I had a lot more. I had a lot more unbelief than I got right now. But I'm working it out. Because as soon as I recognize it and see it for what it is, I confront it and cast it out. Folks running around here trying to cast demons out of other folks being full of demons themselves. You better deal with your own demons. Deal with them spirits that you operating in. Yeshua answered and said unto them, verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. So what I see here is Yeshua demonstrating faith and then trying to raise the level of faith. Among his people. So listen, you know, I remember the first time somebody said, oh, now you thank you, Jesus. See, it's like, where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? And why? Because it's a derogatory statement designed to back me up. Oh, no, I don't think I'm Jesus. Why shouldn't you? Aren't you supposed to be like him? Is that an embarrassment to you? Are you going to let somebody talk you out of what he told you? Well, brother, you can't do, who who who, who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? If he says all things are possible to them that believe, obviously you're not a believer. So keep your I can'ts to yourself. Don't try to put your I can'ts on me because I don't subscribe to that philosophy. Oh, now you arrogant and all puff. No, it's not arrogance. I'm convinced. I was arrogant last year. (laughs) The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, we either believe this or we don't. And what we believe is going to manifest in our actions. That word faith, conviction, the way it's used, assurance, believe, them that believe, especially as it relates to Messiah and the things of Jehovah. The Hebrew writer says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. This is one of those passages you see faith and hope in the same verse. Why? Because faith apart from hope doesn't work. I remember hearing a preacher say, hope, hope, hope ain't faith. You don't be hoping for a thing. You got to have faith in the matter, brother. Well, faith is the substance of things hoped for. My faith is there, and I'm hoping to see the reality of it, because faith and hope works hand in hand. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm standing on a belief, though I don't see the manifestation yet, I'm going to stand on the belief until it manifests. That's how this building came to be. If I looked at what we had, brother, that would have been discouraging. But I heard father say, and then the wherewithal to make it happen. And then the people he raised up to give into it. A lot of them I couldn't see because they weren't here. But the fact of the matter is that when fathers speak to you and tell you something, then you have to put all of your faith and all of your hope in it. Even when the naysayers and those around you say it can't happen, it's impossible. How you going to do that? Hmm. Well, it's not for me to figure that out. My job is to listen to him and follow his direction, follow his instructions, do what he says. And, you know, as he began to just like in this situation, folks ask me, well, how do you study? How do you put together these messages? I listen. That's what I do. I listen. I follow how I've learned, how he communicates with me. And I'm here, I'm there, I'm over there. He wakes me up. He speaks to me in in my dreams. He gets in the truck with me. He drives over here with me. He communicates with me while I'm on the way. He talks to me while I'm talking to you. So it's a constant communion. And this is how your walk has to be with the Almighty. It's a constant communion. Even when you're talking to other people, he's talking to you. Have you ever been in a situation you're about to say something and say, "Uh uh-uh. Don't say that. You're about to. Uh, and you can ignore it if you want to, but you find yourself in a whole pot. Matter of fact, you in a hole, do, you in a, you in what they call an outhouse pit. You done fell in. And he said, not to open that door, you have to learn how to walk with him. Yeah. Because this is what he's expecting you and I to do, to walk with him every day, all day. And this is how he orders our steps. I mean, you got to literally see this thing. Father saying, you know, he's telling you to step here, step here, step here, here. I was watching, uh, well, (laughs) I look at things and father speak from those things of how sensitive we must be to him. Because one misstep, and we could plummet to our death. Just one misstep. Having a conversation with my wife yesterday about Esau. When Esau gave up that birthright, he can get it back. It was gone. One decision in one moment changed the whole trajectory of his life. That's how sensitive, and it's not about being afraid or being fearful, it's developing the confidence, learning how to hear him, and then following his lead. Yes. Faith and hope work hand in hand. In fact, just as Paul wrote, "We are saved by faith." Paul also wrote, "We' are saved by hope." Remember? Romans 8:24. For we are saved by hope. How many sermons have you heard on that? Oh, you know, you know we're, we're saved by faith, brother, not of work, lest any man should boast. Paul wrote that, but he also wrote this. For we are saved by hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. How many of you in heaven now? Now, I know you got visions of gold streets and mansions, because that's the picture that has been painted the imagery that has been given us. All of us is looking for that day where we will be united with our Messiah. In a sense, we are there in the sense that he's united with us if we are aware that he dwells with us. So whether whether I'm here or not, I'm with him. And I want to be mindful 24 hours a day, seven days a week that I'm with him and he's with me and wherever I go, he's right there. So now I'm walking in authority. I'm walking in power. I'm walking in faith. I'm walking in the full awareness that my Messiah is with me and that the Almighty has his eyes on me at that precise moment in my life, just like he's watching that sparrow. When I think along those lines, I'm always trying to be in tune. That's my goal is to be in tune, to let him give me the words to speak, to let him stop me from speaking those words that are coming from me. And when I do that, because I'm going to tell you something, I know me, I could be rough, So you you is rough, but my roughness is in love for you. You see, when I come hard, I'm coming hard for you. I'm not coming hard at you. I'm coming hard for you to help you make the adjustments because I see you standing in your way. You got to get out your way. Man, I'm so far behind in this teaching. Hope is the expectation. See, this is where, you know, your hope can be working against you. You can expect bad stuff to happen. Or you can expect good stuff to happen. We've been taught to expect bad stuff. Society, life has taught us expecting the shoe to drop. Expecting stuff to fall through. Expecting to be passed over, expecting not to get that raise or that promotion. You can go through life expecting the worst, or you can go through life expecting the best. It's all about your perspective. And a lot of your perspective is going to be based on how you see you. And you know what? You didn't teach you to look at you the way you look at you. Society taught you how to see you. Your failures taught you how to see you. Folks close to you taught you how to see you. And Father is saying, let me teach you how to see you. I want you to see you the way I see you so that we can be in sync because as long as we out of sync, you're going to allow other people's version and vision and understanding and idea of who you are supposed to be, guide you, direct you and lead you and then be deceived into thinking that you're letting me lead you. Because if he's leading you, you ain't thinking bad about yourself. You're not looking at yourself as worst as poop. You're not seeing yourself as somebody who can't be righteous. You don't see yourself as an unholy, unworthy vessel. When you see you like he see you, you know what? He see you worthy. You know why he see you worthy? Because he made you that when he sent his son. He saw you unworthy, unable to become worthy. And so he made it possible for you to become worthy simply by, by accepting the one who was worthy. Once you receive Messiah in your life, father see you as his only son. That's how he see you. And he's not condemning you. There's no condemnation. He's not speaking evil of you. He's not waiting on you to mess up, waiting on you to fail so he can punish you. No. He have great expectations, high expectations for you. And he wants you to look to him to make sure that everything you need to accomplish what he has called you to do and to achieve is supplied for. That's how he see you. He see you as an overcomer. He see you as victorious. He see you as a winner. You're not a loser. Now he's got to get you, us, to change how we see ourselves. Because the world has made sure that you see you as worthless, unworthy, unredeemable. Unlovable. When you operate in faith, you hold to a position until what you have faith in manifests. You don't second guess yourself. You don't waver. You don't speak words in opposition to what you are believing. When you speak words, all of the words thereafter is in alignment with what you're believing, regardless to what you see. You're not double-minded. When you operate in faith, you don't argue or dispute within yourself. You don't abandon your belief or go back and forth in your confession. When you have faith, your thoughts, your heart, your mind, your words, and your actions are in one accord. And that's no matter how long it takes to manifest. You don't deal in doubt. See, doubt works against you. If you look down there, number four and five to separate one's self in a hostile spirit. See, that's when you're warring inside. You go, you beat up yourself. One minute you're standing strong, the next minute you're in the dump, warring within yourself, opposing your own self, striving and disputing and contending within yourself, to be at variance with oneself. That's when you got that struggle and you got to allow and see what's going on is that old man and that new man is having an argument. And whatever you feed is who wins. The goal is to feed your faith man, to feed your spirit man, to feed that redeemed man so that he can put that old man out. The old man needs to be evicted every day. Sometimes two and three times a day depending on what you catch yourself thinking about. This is why, brothers and sisters, one of the most important things I can tell you in the natural is to monitor your thinking. Monitor your thinking. Monitor your thinking. The way it's used to doubt, to discern, to contend, to waver. Enemies of faith, fear, doubt, unbelief, walking by sight. They can all hamper your faith. Verse twenty-two: In all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. And that word of again believing—that faith, just as it comes to believing, is faith in motion. That's one way of putting it: is faith in motion. It's acknowledgement of some factor or event to entrust, to believe, to commit, to commit to. Just like you believe you're saved, you commit yourself to that so that the day will come as you endure, you will experience that salvation. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority does thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And that word is another word for power, authority, exousia. His power of choice, basically the priest, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they're the only ones who would give Yeshua, who had the authority to give Yeshua the authority other than the Most High. Yeshua did what he did because of the house. It was his house. It was his father's house. And because of that, he had jurisdiction, even though he wasn't a Levite or a priest, according to the Levitical priesthood. Yeshua knew they were trying to force his submission to them. The high priests and Sanhedrin were the only ones who could give Yeshua the authority to do what he was doing in the temple courts. And they were some of the ones questioning him. Verse 24, and Yeshua answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So the question Yeshua asked them caused them to reason among themselves to come up with the answer to his question. And if you look at their reasoning among themselves, you will see their hypocrisy and their unbelief. Intentional. Look at it. He says, the baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did you not then believe him? But if we say of men, we fear the people. Now they feared him and now they fear the people for all whole John as a prophet, all, all included them. So it's like, if he's a prophet, if he's bringing the, the words of Jehovah, why don't you listen to him? They're having this discussion amongst themselves. In their deliberation amongst themselves, they reasoned and acknowledged that John was a prophet. They reasoned and concluded that no matter what answer they gave, they would entrap themselves, so they chose not to answer. Although they recognized John was a prophet, they did not repent from his teaching. As we know, John, like all the prophets, were killed, and he, John was killed by Herod. Yeshua would later call the religious leaders out for their refusal to repent after hearing the teachings of the prophet John. Verse 27, and they answered Yeshua and said, we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And that fear had to do do with being afraid. They were afraid of Yeshua. That's when they plotted to kill him. Then they were afraid of the people. And I'm going to tell you, when you get into that state of mind, remember last week we talked about he came to Bethany, that Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. And now because they plotted to kill Yeshua, they also said, well, since he raised Lazarus from the dead and caused people to believe, we need to take Lazarus out too. (laughs) Religious people don't have a problem taking you out. They really don't. They will take you out to maintain their religion and act like they ain't done nothing and even convince themselves they're doing God a favor. That's great deception, folks. And we're surrounded by it. The answer gave Yeshua the way out to not answer them and not be disrespectful of them. Although he knew they were trying to force his submission to them. The high priest was the only one who would give Yeshua that authority from their point of view. Although Yeshua did not answer them specifically, he asked them another question. After telling them a story upon which their answer caused them to expose and reveal their unrepentance because of their unbelief in what John was teaching. And I'm coming to the close, but I need to read these verses. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he don't go. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? And they said unto him, The first. Yeshua sure said unto them, verily I say unto you, see, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of, of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. It's amazing that when Herod put John in jail, there was no uprising. There was no picketing outside of the palace. Righteous, meaning in a broad sense, state of him who is as he ought to be. Righteousness, the condition acceptable to Elohim. So John came as a righteous man, preaching the way of righteousness. And they rejected John. They sent their people. Are you the Messiah? Are you that prophet? Are you the one? John says, no, I'm not. They went on about their business. Religious as usual. But he was preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven. They weren't concerned about the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you, people are concerned about the kingdom of heaven today. And the only way they will be concerned about the kingdom of heaven Is we tell them about the kingdom of heaven, they won't know unless somebody tell them. Heaven, kingdom, kingdom of heaven, what's that? Well, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is, because simultaneously we live in two spaces: the world realm and the spirit realm. We are two individuals in one. This is why I talk about the two U's: the spirit man. The redeemed man in you and the old man, that old man, the way the the one everybody knows (laughs) to your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your cousins, your uncles, all your classmates, people you grew up with. They all know that old man. They don't know the new man. And they won't know the new man until you introduce him. And now you got to teach them how to respect that man. Because they're going to still try to treat you as that old man. And you got to remind them, that ain't me no more. He don't live here no more. So don't be trying to conjure him up because I've laid him to rest. Now, let me introduce you to the new me. Let me tell you what I believe now. You know what I used to believe, but let me tell you what I believe now. Let me tell you what my faith is now. You see, I've been transitioned into a new kingdom. And in this new kingdom, all my needs are met. In this new kingdom, I now have a relationship with the creator who has commissioned me to speak on his behalf. I am an ambassador of that kingdom. And you can't be millie mouse about it. Because there's some folks who are going to try to back you up. If you're not confident in what he's making you, then you'll find yourself going back and forth depending on the crowd you're in. <clears throat> let me shut, close this up. The way of righteousness, John came unto them, was the way that was acceptable to Jehovah. The religious leaders' failure to accept and believe John, according to Yeshua, was a rejection of the way of righteousness or the way that was acceptable unto Jehovah. And that's what Messiah was confronting them with When he brought up John in the beginning, in the conversation, because first of all, what did you go out to see? We won't tell you. And then he gives them this story about the two men. And they obviously concluded who did the work. And you know what he was saying? You just like those individuals who rejected what John said. I mean, think about this. The harlots. The publicans, the people you despise, believe John and they will enter in and you will be left out. I'm just going to read these verses and I'm done. Remember what Yeshua said about John in chapter 11. And this is why I say you got to read Matthew in its entirety not verses here and verses there. But back in chapter 11, he says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and have not danced and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said he had a devil. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a man of gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children." So here, he's already compared John, shared about John, and the question is, for us, is understanding the words that Messiah said, how we must take them to heart and really make every attempt we can to walk in it. This is not just good teaching. This should lead to good living, powerful living. When you begin to walk in the authority and walk in the power, and this is not an arrogant demeanor or behavior, it's just having confidence in the one who saved you, the one who called you and the one who has commissioned you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free eBooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey on twitter at apostle bailey and you can subscribe to our youtube page at apostle arthur bailey one if you're in the charlotte area please come and fellowship with us we'll do our best to make you feel right at home our address is on our website at the about link under contact us again thank you for joining us and until next time shalom saints